I am so excited to be here with you guys, and thank you for coming this morning. Thanks for not forsaking the Lord's house on a holiday weekend. We know lots of people are out of town, and lots of people had late nights last night, you know, with fireworks and everything else. My wife and I were just hanging out with some friends and kind of saw the cul-de-sac fireworks, you know, rather than going to the big, the big stuff at a park or whatever and fighting all the traffic and everything. But in years past, we have done that a lot, and that's a lot of fun. One time when we were up in Michigan, just you know, a year or so ago, I was uh, watching my clock very close to me on my uh, clock on my cell phone because you know how it says fireworks start at you know ten seventeen or whatever. So I was kind of keeping an eye on that, so I knew they're about ready to start, and I was listening very closely for that first little poof, like where they're shooting them up and they're just about ready to begin. You know what I'm saying? So I'm sitting there next to my wife on the, on the big blanket, and I hear that, that little tiny poof, and I lean over, and I go, I love you, honey, so much, and I'm glad I'm married to you. I give her a kiss on the cheek, and all of a sudden, poof, poof, poof. I'm like, see that, baby? We still got it. We still got it. So now nobody can use that because now your wives are going to be on to it. But anyway, thank you guys for being here. And we're excited to be here together. And we've got something very significant and important to discuss this morning. We're going to be talking about communion and about the Lord's table. And I want to draw our attention to some things that I've been learning and searching and studying this week that are just absolutely mind-blowing to me. And I hope that you're going to be impacted in the same way I was as I was diving into this whole idea of communion and the Passover supper in the final week of Jesus and the final night that Jesus there was there with his disciples. So I'd love for you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 118. Psalm 118. That's, that's the only place you need to turn. We got a few other scriptures that are going to be up on the screen and I'll read a few more to you, but that's where I'd like you to go as we begin here. There's something really important about final words. In the book of John, chapter 14 through 17, we get an amazing discourse by Jesus at the Last Supper, knowing that he was going to die. And so he laid out these incredible teachings to his disciples, knowing that very soon he was not going to be on the earth any longer. And there's a special significance that happens when someone knows they're going to die, that you really want to lean in close and you want to hear what they have to say, their final words before they die. I remember a few years back, many years back now, my grandfather was there at my high school graduation in New Jersey. He was from Iowa. And he traveled all the way out there. I remember he pulled aside me and my dad and my family. And he said, well, this is going to be the last time that I'm here with you guys. What are you, what are you talking about? It's not that bad. We can fly you out. Or, no, no, this is, this is definitely going to be the last time. And sure enough, just a few short months later, he had a sense, had a feeling. He knew that he was going to die. And so here's Jesus as we enter into this story at the significant moment of the Last Supper, we pay special attention to the intimacy of this celebration, this meal that they're going to have together because Jesus knows full well what's going to be happening to him in the next couple of hours and in the next 24 hours. As we talk about communion here in America, I think sometimes we kind of get the idea and the picture that this is something that Jesus started But we need to recognize here this morning that Jesus was participating in a Passover Seder. The word Seder means order, and it was a very orderly feast that the nation of Israel had set up 1,500 years before Jesus even entered onto the world. 
Okay, so this is part of something that's been going on for 3,500 years, what we're going to be doing here this morning. It's the absolute longest traditional yearly feast in the history of mankind, the Passover Seder. And we need to recognize here this morning as well, as we think about communion, as we think about the juice, and as we think about passing around bread, that that's all stuff that was going on for 1,500 years before Jesus came on the scene as well. The Passover meal involved wine representing something. The Passover meal involved bread that was broken and that was passed around. And here in the 21st century of America, we get to look back and we get to see on this side of the cross how it all connects. And what I want to do here this morning with you briefly is I want to go over this Passover meal in detail with you and talk about how each one of these things held incredible significance for the disciples and for us in this Jesus last night with us. The word wine has a lot of different connotations in scripture. There are certainly elements of wine that were created for blessing, for family, for celebration. It represented bounty and goodness. And there's another element of wine that you see in scripture that represents wrath. And it's this unique dual meaning of wine that takes on such significance at the Seder celebration because it involves both judgment and blessing. It involves both wrath and redemption as part of the Exodus story. And what we want to talk about this morning is the four different cups of wine that were part of the Seder commandments of how to perform this dinner with the family. Four different times during the night, the host would stand up and would lift his glass of wine and would say a blessing and would share something. Four different times. Now you need to recognize here this morning before you get too excited that this was a three-hour meal, number one. And number two, we don't really know how big these glasses were. For somebody to muscle down four glasses of wine in one sitting is pretty impressive or pretty dangerous, right? So no commentary on that. We don't know if it was just a little poor or what, but we do know that this was the command that was in effect in Jesus' day. So as he was a rabbi and he was one who took things to the letter of the law, he would have gone through this Seder just as it was listed out in the Mishnah. The Mishnah is a Hebrew book of commandments of how you should do all of these different ordinances. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. And it's fascinating as you look through the different accounts in the gospel. And as you kind of take little bits and pieces and lay them on top of each other about this Last Supper. It's almost entirely agreed upon by scholars that Jesus was going exactly through the Mishnah and the Seder just as it's listed out, just what we're going to be talking about here this morning. So they had their text of Exodus chapter 6, and I'm going to have this on the screen here, and I want to read this to you. And these four cups of wine were based on the four different I will promises that Jesus made to his people. 
Here's what God says. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord your God and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment and I will take you to be my people. I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So four different promises there that were highlighted by these four cups of wine. And I just want to go through each one with you. The first one is called the cup of sanctification. And that's centered on the phrase, I will bring you out. If you remember the story, God's people, the nation of Israel, were in bondage in Egypt. They were slaves. They were mistreated. Their God was disrespected. And God, during the exodus through his prophet Moses, led the people out. And this first cup of sanctification basically means that these are God's people and they are now going to be sanctified. They're going to be brought out. They're going to be made holy. No longer are they going to be mixed and intermingled. They are going to now be separate in the wilderness as God's people. It would be right at this moment after that first glass of wine was raised and they would partake of it that the Passover story in its entirety would be told. And it would be at this moment in the meal that three pieces of unleavened bread, matzah, would be brought out. And the host would take the middle piece, he would break it in half and he would put half back down and he would hide the other half under a cloth, under a linen somewhere on the table. And it's really interesting and really ironic that we've got children in here with us this morning because children, as part of the Passover Seder, played a huge part. They had roles all throughout where they would ask questions. Why is this night different from every other night? And it was all prompted. It was all listed out. And Jesus was performing this very same way this very night. And what's interesting is that Jesus took the seat at the head of the table that was meant for the Father. And I think it's a little ironic that over and over, Jesus would tell his disciples when they would say, lead me to the Father, show us the Father, that he would say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And here at this night, that is the place that he takes, the place of honor, the MC of the ceremony, as the Father, and those gathered around him as his family. The second cup is called the cup of deliverance. So after the story was told, after the piece of bread was hidden, half the piece of bread, they would talk more and raise the cup on the cup of deliverance. The phrase that says, I will deliver you from slavery. Remember your freedom. And it's at this point that everyone is commanded to wash their hands. And up until this point, all the disciples, everything looked pretty normal. Jesus was following the Mishnah, all 14 elements, just as they were up until this point, And they were ready. Okay, it's time to wash our hands. You can see him rolling up their sleeves. And Jesus went over and he picked up the basin and he picked up the towel. Everything's going according to plan, right? But that's where you see the incredible turn that Jesus has. Because instead of letting people ceremonially wash their hands, Psalm 24, who may enter into the house of the Lord, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Instead of that, Jesus takes a knee and he gets down 
and he puts his hands in the filth and the grit and the manure and the mire and begins to wash his disciples' feet. And you can sense the anger and the indignation, right? With Peter, he says, Lord, you will never wash my feet. What are you doing? Why are you going away from our process? You're supposed to be our teacher. And Jesus said, unless you let me wash your feet, you will have no part of me. I am upending this system. And I am showing you now that true sanctification, that true deliverance is going to come in the form of a servant. And you'll notice, you'll remember, Peter says, okay, Lord, where if you're going to wash my feet, wash my hands and wash my, wash my head also so that my whole body may be clean. As we're continuing on between the second and the third cup, another very interesting element would happen. The father, the one who's the host at the table, would begin a process of what's called an antiphony. An antiphony is when one person says something or recites something or chants something and then another group of people say that same thing back or the answer to that. And our closest thing that we have here nowadays to that, or you go down to Raleigh, or you go up to Chapel Hill, and you're at the NC State game, or you're at the UNC game, or you're at the Duke game, if you can get into Cameron Indoor Stadium. But you know what I'm talking about. The cheerleaders are all there, and they're like, red, white, you know, red wolf, pack, wolf, pack. And you got this whole stadium, and there's two people, two, it almost seems like, in one voice, these two voices are going back and forth, blue, white, Tar, heels, you know, and you're going back and forth in this big arena. That's exactly what was going on here. Not quite to that level, but that same idea. Is Jesus would say something, Jesus would read something, and they would recite something back to him. They would answer him. And what's been going on for 3,500 years were these phrases right here. This antiphony. That's called the Dianu. And the Dianu is a Hebrew word that simply translated the phrase means, it would have been enough. Everybody say that. It would have been enough. So Jesus would recite these different phrases and the disciples around the table would have responded back to him and said, it would have been enough. Let's try it here this morning. You ready? Here's what he said. He said, had he brought all, all of us, brought us all out from Egypt, it would have been enough. Had he judged just the Egyptians, just Egyptians and not their idols, it had he just split, just split the sea, but not taken us onto dry land. Had he taken us on dry land, but not drowned all of our oppressors. And it goes on and on and on and on and on all throughout the whole entire story. Reminding themselves that all the tiny little steps that God had taken to show that he loves his people. And the response to each one would be, man, if God just stopped right there, that would have been enough. But he didn't just stop right there. He kept on going, well, that would have been enough. 
But man, then he brought us into, you know, the promised land and that would have been enough. But then he gave us the Ten Commandments. That would have been enough. And it goes on and on and on as they're trying to wrap their minds around this deliverance that God had given to them. After the Dayanu had been spoken, the full Passover meal was served. The main course was lamb, representing the Hebrews and having to take that perfect lamb that needed to be sacrificed and the blood that needed to represent that these were part of the people of God as they put them on their doorposts. And the angel of the Lord passed over those houses. Just imagine this situation where you've got a lamb on the table and then you've got Jesus who is the lamb at the table. And just imagine him knowing, being all-knowing and knowing what's going to happen that night as he's looking around at these men. Several would betray him, all of whom would scatter when the time mattered most. But as he's looking at them partaking of and tearing apart this lamb and all the symbolism that he knew was going to happen. So after a blessing, the half of the bread is pulled back out again. And it's at that point that it is broken and it is passed out to everyone around the table. And again, now looking back at it, we can see like, oh my goodness, it makes so much sense. There was three different pieces of bread and they took the middle one. They represent the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And they took the middle one, the Son, and they broke it in half and they hid half of it underneath linen only to be taken out later after the redemption and then broken and given to everybody that was around the table and shared freely. What's really interesting at this point in the night is the third cup, the cup of redemption. Remember the phrase from Exodus chapter six where God says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. What's interesting about this passage here in Matthew chapter 26, again, I'll just read it to you, is that Jesus kind of goes off track again. Matthew chapter 26, listen to this, here's what he says. So while they were still eating, Jesus took the bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples. And he said, take and eat, for this is my body. And then he took the cup, this is the third cup, the cup of redemption, and he gave thanks, and he offered it to them all, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So what's so significant about this? Well, Jesus is saying this is the cup of redemption. With every other cup, he takes it himself and he pours wine into everyone else's cup. With this one, he changes tactics. He says this is the wine of the new covenant, the blood of the new covenant, and he gives it to them. He doesn't drink it. And they immediately, their minds, when he started talking about blood and covenant, their minds would immediately go to the Old Testament. They knew all about that. 
They knew about how the priests would have to sprinkle blood onto things. And Jesus is now saying, no, I don't want to just sprinkle blood. I don't want it to be on the outside. This is something totally different. You need to ingest this. You need to drink this. This needs to become part of you, not just on the external, but on the internal. And then the most amazing thing happens because Jesus then cuts the meal short. Because how many cups of wine did we say there were? It was four. This was number three. But then Jesus all of a sudden says, oh, and by the way, I'm not going to drink any more wine with you until my kingdom comes. Cuts it short. And they didn't understand. What they didn't see is what Jesus was talking about was Revelation chapter 19. The marriage supper of the Lamb. And it would be at that point where cup number four would truly be fulfilled, the cup of completion or the cup of restoration. It's where God says, I will be your God. You will be my people. We're gonna be connected. There's gonna be peace. And we get an element of that in this world. And they had somewhat of an element of that back then, but that will not truly be fulfilled until we are all there together in the marriage supper of the Lamb when we are truly God's people and he is truly our God. It says in the scriptures that then they sung a hymn and they went out. Jesus sung. I want you to think about that for a second. Jesus, who is God? Jesus, who's there as the father figure. You've seen me, you've seen the father. I and the father are one. I, Jesus, am now going to sing I'm going to lead you in a song. And it's undoubtable that we know the song that he sang. Because it's all listed out there in the Mishnah, in those 14 points of what the Seder should be. And it's Psalm 118. So if you have your Bible or your device open, I just want to highlight a couple of key phrases from Psalm 118 that now with this backstory, now with this incomplete Seder meal where he didn't partake of the final one, now they're singing this before they go up to the Mount of Olives and those guards are already getting their swords ready and getting the torches ready and they're already probably just about on their way to come up and arrest him, led by Judas. He knows that these things have to happen and here's the song that they sing, Psalm 118. Verse 5, Psalm 118. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me. In just a few minutes, he's going to be there in the garden. He's going to be in distress. Notice what he said several times. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Because there was going to be a fourth cup. It's not that cup of completion that's coming. But the fourth cup that Jesus partook of was the cup of wrath. He knew it was coming. If there's any other way, God, let this cup pass. I don't want to drink it. I don't want to be in darkness. I don't want all the sin of humanity on my shoulders. On my human side, I don't want it. But yet, God, I know this will give you glory. And this has to be done. Read verse six, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. 
What can man do to me? Those words are coming out of Christ's mouth. Verse 7. The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Verse 13. Think about this and think about what we know happened to Jesus. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. How about this? Skip down to verse 22. The very stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And that next phrase, Jesus is singing at the end of this Psalm 118. He says, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Now you remember in Hebrew culture, the day didn't start at 5.30 a.m. when the sun came up. Their day started when the sun went down at dusk and evening. And it went from evening to evening. That was the day. When was the Last Supper? It was at night. So this was the beginning of the day. This is the day. And here Jesus is saying, this, this day, this is the one. This is the one. This is the day that the Lord has made. And it's not going to be easy, but we need to rejoice and we need to be glad in it. And thus these four cups are fulfilled it will be fulfilled in completion and the cup of redemption that talks about I will redeem you with a strong arm that was a motif that was so familiar to them the strong arm of the Lord reaching down and rescuing and pulling people out of bondage and, and rescuing people and now Jesus is saying oh no I'm going to redeem you I'm going to redeem you with outstretched arms but they're going to look like this I'm going to redeem you with an outstretched arm. And you almost see the antithesis of what we read before, where they talked about God's goodness and how if he had just done this, it would have been enough. If he had just done this, it would have been enough. If he had just done this, it would have been enough. And we see kind of the opposite of that here. Because if he had just been born of a virgin, it would not have been enough. If he had just performed miracles, that would not have been enough. If he had just raised Lazarus from the dead, that would not have been enough. If he just healed the sick, if he had just fulfilled prophecy, that would not be enough. Because Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sins. The only thing that would be enough only thing that would satisfy this cup of wrath would be that a holy son of God became the lamb that takes away the sins of the entire world. And that's why there was Jesus on the cross and he took that cup of, of, of wrath and they offered him the, the wine, the sour wine, not the sweet wine that they had at the Passover, the sour wine, the vinegar. And as soon as he was done with that, he said, okay, this is enough. It is finished. It is completed. The wrath of God is satisfied. This judgment upon me shall now become joy for you. This cursing upon me shall become a blessing for you. 
So as we think about this day and we think about the significance of the four cups, we both take it soberly and seriously as we think about what Jesus went through, but there's an element of anticipation that says, man, I can't wait to be there with you and to take that final cup with you in your kingdom at that feast. So this morning, let's dwell on this and let's let this impact you, the weight of the glory of the Son of God. Let's pray together. And God, we thank you so much that you have revealed things to us. Lord, we thank you that we can look back and we can see and we've got insight and understanding now that they didn't have. But yet, God, we recognize there's still so much that we don't understand. And Lord, we just pray right now as we join in the tradition. God, as we enter into something that's been going on for so long, that we would understand it afresh and new. That we would be able to celebrate it and worship you through it. So we love you, God. We pray all these things in your son's precious name.